Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, y'all. On today's episode, we're going to talk about one-on-one meetings, those notorious meetings where managers and bosses get together with the people that work for them and talk about, well, they talk about all kinds of stuff. So we're going to get into that. Before we do that, why don't we have a little one-on-one check-in and decide what's going on with us today? (gasps) Okay, let's do it. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, We do a check-in question at the beginning of every episode of this podcast. It is just a moment for us to get present, to get connected, to forget about what we were just doing the moment before this. Uh, Our check-in question for today is, what was the highlight of your week? We happen to be recording this on a Friday afternoon, so just having a look back. Uh, What's something great that happened this week, Aaron? So I got to facilitate two different workshops in a row this week which is really, really fun for me and also really exhausting. So I'm in this sort of satisfied but tired state. Nice. But uh, two different groups, one in Austin, one in San Francisco, one in government, one in the private sector. Just like a nice mix of beautiful people doing important work. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, What about you? For me, I do a seminar at a local university a couple of times a year. Um, This one was focused on self-awareness, and I was talking to graduate students, uh, and we did some pretty deep work around values and unpacking ego and understanding how the choices that they're making now may or may not impact their 70-year-old selves. And and I had a lot of really nice and and pretty profound conversations uh, sort of in the hallways afterwards. So uh, That's awesome. It's one of those things that like I never want to go do it, and then every time I do it, it's really fun. Fun fact about self-awareness, uh, for those of you that don't have it, the Tension and Practice <laughs> deck for the Ready has a card in it that says we aren't self-aware, and it's a trick card so because no one can ever choose it. Because if they are self-aware, of course, they don't need to choose it, and if they're not self-aware, they don't allow themselves to choose it, and it's really fun to watch teams grapple with that. So I was tickled by the fact that you're digging deeper on self-awareness. Nice. Okay, so today's topic is the one-on-one meeting, as we said, um, and I want to start by just getting oriented. So can you tell us why, why is this a hot topic for you right now? Why, why one-on-ones? Why now? Yeah, I've been thinking about this topic a lot lately because I've had a bunch of people in different spots ask me how to do them right. And I've mm. been like, should you do them at all? Uh, <laughs> and I feel like maybe we have a slightly controversial take on what this meeting is and what it should be used for. And so I just thought it would be fun to riff. Nice, nice. So uh, let's start with what they're all about. What is the sort of traditional or at least you know popular one-on-one meeting all about? What do you see out there? I see a 
weekly or biweekly meeting that a manager holds with each of their employees for somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes that generally includes some combination of context from the manager being pushed, status updates from the employee being shared, and then a general triaging of things needed by each party. Right. Is that, Decisions is that, what that you have see? to be made. Yeah, exactly. It's it's um, all the things that are blocking mm-hmm. uh, the, the progress of the individual employee usually and all the things that are gnawing at the mind of the leader kind of jammed into a space. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like a bucket for stuff. Yeah. That happens between two people. Sloppy bucket. It's, it is a sloppy bucket. Yeah, I think that's why uh, we're interested in this because we might want to clean it up a little bit. So uh, so what do you think? What's your hot take on 101s, good or bad, pro or con? So, I mean, generally the way they're done, I think they're bad news. Um, okay. I think they I think they can be good. I think it would be weird to take a position, although it might be fun for like the sake of argument, but I think it'd be weird to take a position that like two people should never get together and talk shit. Like that is not, you know, that is not the thing, right? There's going to be moments where we need to connect and be vulnerable and steer and mentor and all that. But what generally tends to happen is that the one-on-one becomes a symptom. It becomes symptomatic Mm -hmm. of other problems in the operating system from a meeting rhythm that's anemic where we don't Mm -hmm. have a place to put our stuff to decision rights issues that are not clear and people, you know, are unable to proceed until they get that permission to information flow that's weak and, and asymmetrical. So they need the context. It just feels like when the rest of the OS is somewhat hosed, as we know that it often is in bureaucracy, then the one-on-one is like the superhero to the rescue. Right. And that's why it's so funny that, you know, most managers go into this being like, I don't really necessarily want to or need to do this, but it is like my employee's favorite meeting of the week. Like they just love it and I wouldn't want to take it away from them. And I'm kind of like, you're just, that's like offering somebody a glass of water in hell. Like, of course they don't want to lose the glass of water. Like you're giving them this one place where they can actually get shit done and get your permission and play politics and like know what's going on. So it does feel like it's this codependent thing that, that I want to disrupt. Um, but yeah. now, now that I've shit on it a bit, what would you, what would you add to that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like the way that you talked about that in the context of the broader OS, because I think that's exactly right. I feel like one-on-ones should be mostly about like membership, if we think mm-hmm. about the fields of the canvas, but they end up being about all of the other pieces that you mentioned, because those things uh, are not well designed and enforced where they belong. So they all sort of get put into this sloppy bucket. Um, yeah, it's like it I, could be member, membership and mastery, but instead it's everything else. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I have a bunch of other problems with one-on-ones. Break uh, it down. So <laughs> the, the main thing is that if you believe, as we do, that sunlight is the best disinfectant in a system, one-on-ones to me just create a bunch of these little pockets of secrecy and non-transparency. And I think that they just hold a space for conflicting information to happen and like gossip to happen and for influencing. Like I know when I used to have a one-on-one with my boss, when I worked Mm -hmm. at a bank, it was like my one hour of the week to sort of like get my point (laughs) of view across and like nudge her in the way that I wanted to often like 
you know, not very generously. That was like against other people. Back to um, manipulative insincerity. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, ago. like yeah. I think that's like so much of what happens in one-on-ones is like it is the place for manipulative insincerity that is cloaked as a place for like radical candor. Right, um, right. And but I think it totally tips into that bucket. So I feel like just by keeping that container alive, we fill it with things that are not super beneficial Mm -hmm. really often. It does seem to me that without structure, it preys on kind of our worst nature in that way, right? Like if we just leave it empty, we're going to fill it with that stuff in order to navigate the system. And in some ways, that's actually the beautiful thing about human beings is that we're so good at navigating complexity that when we're put into an environment that's heavy on bureaucracy and has the wrong operating system, we will find these ways, these ways mm-hmm. to like get our way, to nudge, to make things happen, to to go around the system. And so the one-on-one is just one more example of that where we're like, oh, this is the way I can get things done, so I'm going to do this. You know, we, we, we sort that out. But, but there is a reality that at a bare minimum, if they're doing something we could be doing somewhere else that's more transparent and right. more at scale, then they're wasteful. And so it's sort of like, even if what's happening in them is super positive, unless that's something that really is exclusive to that one person, and this goes back to that whole idea of like, are we talking about kind of the nature of our membership? Are we talking about mastery? Is this a feedback opportunity? Like those kinds of things. If it's about anything else, then it's wasteful because we could have done it together or we could have done it once or we could have recorded it or we could have done it as an AMA or we could have done something else that would have funneled that energy around. And so I do think that that is, that's one part of the, um, of the move here is like, let's put that other stuff where it belongs so that what's left over is the good stuff. So at some level, I think the thing that's going on here is we just have to start to package that stuff that belongs somewhere else and ship it out and, and then focus on what's left over. Yeah. And along the lines of waste, that is absolutely something that happens because you have a leader, (laughs) they come back from a big meeting or from a board meeting or from a conference. And in every one-on-one, they share the same context. So like just a huge waste of time, right? Like just roll tape. But the insidious part of that is that Often what happens is like they share something slightly different with each person depending on what they think you need to hear or want to hear. And over time, it actually fuels mistrust because it's like somebody hears one piece of information from me and then in someone else's one-on-one, they hear that but with a different spin. And now all of a sudden it's like, you know, is Rodney trying to like – you know, shape us or move us or nudge us or manipulate us in some way and they're comparing notes. And even if that's not the intention – The reality is that it's better either to do it one time and do it publicly and then sense, make, and synthesize as a group or not do it at all because repeating slightly tweaked versions of the same context or the same conversation is really a breeding ground for misinterpretation and mistrust. Yeah, plus one. So let's say that we took all the decision stuff and we cleared that up by having very clear decision rights for our people and having, uh, you know, moments in the operating rhythm where we can do governance together and things like that. Mm -hmm. And let's say that we took the context out of the meeting and had information sharing in public channels and had single group, you know, group settings where the, the leader or any member of the team could tell everyone else what's going on. Um, and, and we sort of removed the, the political waste by having these forums for conflict management and for, you know, changing the rules and roles of the organization. What's left over, I assume, is what would make a good one. So can yeah. you can you paint a picture of what you think a good one-on-one looks like or one that you've seen? Sure. 
I think a good one-on-one looks like a place for development in whatever form that's going to take. So that might be a leader or the power holder in the dynamic saying to someone who works for them, hey, you know, I really want to hear from you how something's going or how I'm doing or how I can help you or whatever, or vice versa, an employee being able to say, you know, I really want some insight into how this is going, asking Mm -hmm. for that kind of information that is better to be shared one-on-one. And it probably doesn't feel safe to be doing that kind of one-on-one candid feedback-oriented conversation in a larger group for the most part. Safe or efficient. It's inefficient in the opposite direction if you're doing that in front of everyone else, which happens all the time where it's like, you know, Rodney gives me feedback in front of 10 other people and they're like, "Uh, we're not here for this. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then the other thing, this is actually like comes from a personal anecdote. So there was a period of time that I was on a team and uh, there was a person on that team who really, really really disliked me and had a really difficult time working with me who was a peer. And uh, it was pretty one-sided. Mm. And uh, it was like, you know, she was she was just like fighting a one-person battle against an absent enemy for the most part. And <laughs> our boss eventually said to me, you know, like 75% of my one-on-ones with this person are taken up with her complaining about you. Interesting. And 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 he eventually said to her, like, you know, Rodney has literally never mentioned you in a one-on-one. So like you might want to think about that as a dynamic. Right. The story I, you're telling yourself. Right. I bring that up as an example because I think that there has to be a place for that, right? Like there has right. to be a place right. if right. you are really struggling with someone on your team or with a peer or whatever. I think it's fair a place to play. To yeah. have a place to say to your boss, like this is really difficult for me or it's really bugging me. And I also think a go- in a good one-on-one situation, your boss pretty quickly would be like, okay, let's move you to action. Like, right, what are right. you going to do about this? Or what are you asking me to do about this? What I hear a lot, a lot of the complaints that I hear about one-on-ones from leaders are basically people showing up every week with the same ax to grind. Mm-hmm. Not actually wanting the leader to do anything about it, not coming with a request for the leader, and also not coming with any solution or progress week on week, but every week just coming back and being like, here's another thing Rodney did that pisses me off. And then having the leader be like, have you done anything or talk to her about it? And having them be like, right. no. And then the leader being like, would you like me to? And then being <laughs> like, no. And then doing it again next Tuesday. Like that is a very ineffective pattern to be broken. So hearing you talk about this, my twisted frameworky mind has concocted a three C's framework. Oh, God. Let's so, hear it. Right. Let's hear the alliterative Friday afternoon framework. That's right. It's Friday afternoon. I'm just going to let it off the leash. <laughs> so it's it's coaching. Uh-huh. It's counsel. Yeah. So the coaching is the feedback, two-way, that whole relationship about mastery. The counsel is exactly what you said. Like sometimes we're in these conflicts. We need someone to break us loose, send us back to the source, whatever the case may be. The third one we haven't talked about, but I actually think is one of the most important, is connection. Mm -hmm. So even if there's nothing to talk about developmentally, even if there's nothing going on in the system, even if the rest of the operating system is humming perfectly, we are human beings and we should have time to connect. We should have time to be with each other and just check in and show that we care personally as human beings about each other. And so I think the the one-on-one when done correctly can be as simple as that. Like, hey, I'm going to get some coffee. Do you want to come get coffee with me? And we can just be people and we can kind of catch up on what's going on. And that will inform our vulnerability and our intimacy and our kind of empathy with each other for the rest of the week when we're in actual serious meetings. So 
Coaching, counsel, connection, three C's, Friday afternoon framework. Yeah, you should trademark that. TM. I think, I think that's exactly right. And I feel people in meetings, whether they're group meetings or one-on-one meetings, hesitant to just call out the social aspect of right, those right. meetings. Wouldn't and want like, to waste my boss's time. Yeah. I say to people all the time, like when we try to get people into a facilitated meeting structure and they're like, this feels formal. It doesn't feel like we have time to connect. I'm like, do that later <laughs> and do it on purpose. Like right, don't right. do it during the meeting that's about, you know, doing a retrospective or that's about doing governance. Schedule time to actually do that because it's valid and it's important. But like call it what it is. Like yeah, you and I had yeah. a meeting like that like years ago when we just didn't really have any shared work. And I remember there being a time where it was like, we just aren't crossing paths. Let's just like put a half an hour on the calendar like every six weeks just to say what right. up. And the right. agenda was like, how have you been? What up? Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a really valuable use of time. And we it doesn't have to come disguised as like work theater, you know, business role play. We could just say it's an important right. part of our relationship. So we're going to do that. Yes. And it, and it dovetails really nicely with, with the next place I wanted to go with this topic, which is one-on-ones are not just for bosses anymore. Sure. Like it's, this is definitely not something that has to be uh, something that happens across layers or it can be across span. It can be people from your same group. It can be people you work with a lot, people you work with a little. Like the one-on-one is literally just the meeting of the minds. And so I think we should way open up the aperture of, you know, when and who gets to play in that way. Because, yeah, you and I have great one-on-ones. And that's yeah. like we don't work for each other. Right. I think it's a really nice way to sort of see someone in a working context and then connect personally. And what I mean by that is I've had one-on-ones with people uh, in the last bunch of years where I'll get a ping and it'll be like, hey, I just realized that you and I haven't <laughs> caught up in a while. Or like, yeah, you know, yeah. or I heard about this thing that happened to you and I want to make sure that you're okay or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, it's a very nice way in a busy world and a complex system and a large number of humans to hold in our heads. It's a really nice way to make someone feel seen and valued and special because you go like, hey, I heard that, you know, I heard your aunt died. So I put yeah. time on your calendar because I just want to hear how you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. My aunt farm is very important to me. Um, so the the thing about this one that I love is it also connects to the whole Dunbar's number thing and the idea mm-hmm. of like, we can't have an infinite number of connected relationships in our lives. So when we choose to make this investment, it is a gift and it is a choice. And I think that's, you know, something that's special and kind of worthy of respect and some honor. Zooming way out from that, way out from the one-on-one connections to the whole system, Mm -hmm. when we're thinking about transformation, is there a role to play for one-on-ones in that? And how do you see them either helping or hindering a transformation when you're, you know, inside advising and coaching? Mm Mm-hmm. I see a couple of things happen. So just like in our episode about the first 90 days of moving to self-management with Doug, uh, see Chris from a couple of weeks ago, you see people start to freak out in the face of big changes and in the face of a lot of uncertainty and frankly, a lot more empowerment and agency and authority. People have a lot of feels that they have to deal with. And what most people do with those feels is set up one-on-one meetings to process them with people that they trust. Right. And that 
can be okay in a very limited way. (laughs) But I want to put a lot of caution tape around that statement because what can also happen is that people stay in that hamster wheel of freak out and they don't do their own work to say, I'm freaking out and what I need to do is design an experiment or create a proposal or get clarity on my role or look at why this structure isn't working for me. And instead, by continuing to sort of feed the drama in a one-on-one context, people don't ever do the system work that's necessary because they stay in their personally held tension in the face of change. And that's a missed opportunity. It feels to me like the difference between processing and self-medicating. So the processing would be like, I'm having one-on-ones, but each conversation is kind of moving my thinking forward. I'm asking different questions or I'm bitching about different things. Like it's moving versus this just feels good to just be salving this with this conversation type that we're having. And so let's just do it over and over again, have the same conversations over and over again. It's like eating a bag of Snickers or watching Netflix on, uh, on stream, you know, just like, I'm just, just like avoiding, right? Soothing. I'm using this as a way to avoid and soothe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think there's a place for the one-on-one or often in our case, two-on-one because we often work in duos with a leader in transformation because like where a leader is having agita and feels yeah. and yeah. uncertainty and questions, like I would rather that they're processing that with me than that they're yeah. out in front of their team being like, I don't know if it's working. <laughs> You know, a little bit of that's okay, but not a lot. <laughs> a little yeah, bit of that is okay. But, yeah, the uh, reassurance. Yeah, you know, like we've talked about this in the past in terms of a leader's role in transformation and how big of an ask it is to have someone being steadfast in a thing that they themselves are learning and like how much sort of cognitive load and emotional load that takes. And to me, having a standing one on one with your transformation person so that you continue to refine your thinking and sort of stay a day ahead on the syllabus makes a lot of sense. But Mm -hmm. I rarely see those scheduled interactions fall into the patterns that I'm talking about. Because those are usually the kind of interactions where like the leader, you know, my, my current one, like, He'll show up and say, you know, this is what's on my mind right now. How can I be thinking differently Mm -hmm. about that? And I think that's a great use of that interaction in transformation that does not create dysfunction or disruption. Yeah, that makes total sense. And it's funny because one of your principles for uh, change that I like best around, you know, start by stopping really is an interesting and provocative one when it comes to one-on-ones because Mm -hmm. I do really like the idea of, one of the first experiments out of the gate is the leader shutting down the old one-on-one rhythm, not because they don't want to bring it back ever, but because it'll push all that needed authority and decisioning and agita back out into the wild where people then were going to have to be like, can I just make this decision or how do I get this done? Or I guess I'm going to have to go talk to this person. Like it's a really cool way to kind of uh, screw down the lid on the boiler and just let things heat up a little bit and see what starts to emerge. So I I was wondering if you would have seen that before and if you were into that because I, yeah, I totally am into that. Well, and it's like anything else, right? Like if we have the time, if if you have the time with the leader, you're going to find something to talk about. Yeah. And if you just don't, if that time is just deleted from the calendar, then you have to be more thoughtful about what a valuable use of time would be if you're going to put it back on. 
So Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good exercise to go through just to see like how much of the stuff I'm bringing to this conversation is just bullshit to fill the time (laughs) and how much of it is like I cannot go on if I don't have this one-on-one conversation with my boss. Right, right. So who should we talk to? Who should we talk to, Aaron? I feel like you have an idea about this. What you think? I I do. The light bulb went off. So I think there are many different angles we could take with this, but I think the angle that's most helpful to the listener is the coaching angle because we all know how to connect as human beings. We, you know, we're probably reasonably good at giving someone else interpersonal counsel, but how to coach well and Mm -hmm. and how to kind of pick up on some of the conversations we've had about feedback and about mastery. Now connecting the dots with like, what does coaching really look like? What kinds of better questions can we be asking? So I was thinking um, Michael Bungay-Stanier, who wrote the book, The Coaching Habit, among others, has a really interesting mind on this. And he has obviously coached an enormous number of people and he's written a great book about how to do it well. So uh, when we get back after the break, we will be joined by Michael. Ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. We're back with Michael Bungay-Stanier, author of The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap. Michael, welcome to the show. So, so good to be here. I feel only slightly daunted following on that introductory conversation about <laughs> what you guys are talking about. I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to drag this, the quality of this show right down, but that's just my style. <laughs> you know what? We'll do the best we can and see what happens. Yeah, audience, um, come and sync with me as I lower the standard of the quality of podcast you're used to. <laughs> I'm so sure they're already that getting will not a flavor for you. I'm sure uh, that will not be true. But it's always nice to start with lowered expectations, right? Totally. It is. Totally. Yeah, that's the secret to happiness, actually, I've heard. <laughs> that's right. Um, for those that have not read your book or, or heard of you, which has got to be not many because your book is in literally every airport bookstore I've ever been to. <laughs> true. Um, just tell the folks at home a little bit about Box of Crayons, the coaching sure. habit, kind of your, your world in a nutshell. Yeah, so I founded a company called Box of Crayons uh, nigh on 20 years ago. And after a certain amount of flapping around, trying to do anything or everything for anybody who would give me some money because I was a solopreneur, it emerged into actually turning into a real company. And over the years, it's found increasing focus. And now we talk about Box of Crayons as helping organizations shift their culture from being advice-driven to curiosity-led. And the work we do in lots of organizations and typically bigger organizations is to uh, work with managers and leaders to to give them coaching skills and to really kind of unweird the whole whole feeling about coaching. Because as important as Mm -hmm. coaching is, and you've talked about it, um, for, for most people, coaching is a slightly peculiar, slightly weird, slightly black box experience. And they're like, I don't even know what's going on here. We're like, okay, coaching is an essential leadership behavior. It's an essential leadership skill. Let me help you and actually um, make this feel like it's a normal, useful, practical way of showing up. It doesn't just help the people you're coaching. It doesn't just help the people that are in your organization, but it helps you live a better life and a more human life and a more effective life as well. Absolutely. And driving the success of that are a couple of books, The Coaching Habit, which I put out about four years ago, which is, to my delight and surprise, sold lots of copies, like about three quarters of a million copies now, which is awesome. Insane. Um, Damn. 
insane. Made all the sweeter by the fact that um, I spent three years trying to get it published, and in the end, I self-published <laughs> it, having been rejected. So I'm like, yes. You can I imagine how smug I feel about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you'll have to tell us your secret later. <laughs> I, if only I knew, because I would love to be able to repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's um, the new book called the, the Advice Trap, which is a kind of follow-on from that, and it's a deeper dive into behavior change. Awesome. What might be fun, uh, because we landed, you know, in the beginning of this episode on a need for coaching mm. in all organizations, I'm sure the three of us are very aligned on that, is yes. uh, is for the uninitiated, Michael, maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, when you say coaching, what you mean, and what it is and is not. Oh, that's, so that's a brilliant place to start. Because this is part of the baggage of coaching is everybody kind of knows what we're talking about, but doesn't really know because it just gets used in so many ways in so many places in so many contexts. It's like strategy. You know, it's one of those words that you can just throw in and it's just, okay, I don't know. I'm not sure what that means, but let's go with it. So here's how I talk about coaching and here's what I mean. And I make it a very clear, keen behavior. It's this, can you stay curious a little bit longer can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Because here's the truth of the matter. Most people are advice giving maniacs. I mean, honestly, yeah, they, they love it. I mean, and you know this, everybody who's listening, you know it. Somebody starts talking and you don't really know what's going on because you don't really have the context and you don't fully understand the people or know the people and you definitely don't know the technical specifications. And after about 10 seconds, you're like, I think I've got some ideas. It's ridiculous. <laughs> as soon as you right. hear that, you realize how ridiculous that is. But we are so wired and trained to go, the way I add value is I leap in and I give advice. So okay. what I'm saying with coaching, and really I say, don't even be a coach, but be more coach-like. It's about slowing down, staying curious a little bit longer, rushing to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. Nice. That's really that's really cool. I think that's a really good shorthand and also to me um, – feels like a very safe definition for all the people out there that are like coaching. Like, I don't want therapy, which like as a coach, right. I hear that a lot from people. Totally. And I'm like, slow your roll. I'm not here to be your therapist. I'm not a medical <laughs> professional. I'm going to just ask right. you some questions and we're going to find some insight today. But, um, but I do think it's like, a, it's a very misunderstood practice. So I really, I love that definition and that feels like it could apply in like almost any circumstance, which is also really super cool. Well, I mean, you, you are both nuanced experts in understanding change. And you know as soon as you come in with some sort of external offer, homeostasis means that the system pushes back. Right. And that's what happens when you approach somebody and goes, hey, Aaron, I've got good news. I'm going to do some coaching with you. I'm going to fix your haircut. Yeah. And, you're, and, you're, and your lizard brain goes, okay, I don't know who you are. <laughs> right. I, don't know, I don't know what coaching is. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what the hell you think you're doing here. But I'm not at all interested in this offer that you've just made me. Whereas if you don't even tell them that you're, this is coaching, you just go, look, I'm just, let me just ask you a question because I'm interested. They're like, okay. oh, okay, we're, we're in a conversation, we're in a relationship together. And, you know, part of what you're about is this humanizing of, of work. And coaching is one of the great methods for humanizing our work relationships and, and the way we show up. So steering that back for a second to this episode's topic, which was one-on-ones, and kind of we found ourselves in the pocket of really believing that one-on-ones are about having these great coaching conversations. I am curious to just get your take on 
are one-on-ones generally good? Are they generally bad? How do you see those kind of intersecting with your work and helping Mm -hmm. people coach? Just like, what's your impression of that meeting and that phenomenon? Well, as far as I can tell, most one-on-ones are terrible. I mean, they're terrible on both sides of the equation because they're (laughs) they're this ritual where each person is saying to themselves, I hope this is good for the other person because this is an utter waste of my time right now. But, you know, tradition dictates that we should have these one-on-ones. And so often it has that kind of experience where if you're the more senior person in the conversation, you're like, all right, I'm doing this nominally to support you, but really to kind of hear a checkup and make sure that your behavior Yes. And then if you're on the other side, you're like, okay, I'm just proving my value. So let me tell you all the stuff that's going on. Let me perform. So let me perform. So there's, it's this, uh, (laughs) you know, it's kind of like a panopticon, the kind of thing where you're like, okay, (laughs) this allows us to keep, you know, everything in view and make sure that I've got my ass covered and you've got your ass covered and that we're safe here. And it becomes a tedious collaboration in self-protection. Mm-hmm. Now, not all, not all one-on-ones are like that, but, you know, I've talked to lots of people and I go, is this, is your one-on-ones anything like this? And there's that nervous laugh in the audience, which is like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's scary that you know that about us. And I'm like, it's not about you, it's about one-on-ones. There's something systemically flawed with the way that they're set up. And one-on-ones can be really powerful. You know, there is a place for that experience to say, this is my chance to be supported by somebody. Um, yeah. But for me, um, you know, when I talk to people about, you know, here's one way of rethinking your one-on-ones. I mean, there's a deeper way to say, do you even need to do this? Because I I loved in Mm -hmm. your conversation leading into this, which is like, is there something systemically flawed with the whole idea of one-to-ones, you know, in a way that um, creates distrust, creates Mm. niches, creates blind spots, and actually is a way of diminishing autonomy and kind of a, a shared commitment to an outcome. Um, but if you're going to have one-on-ones, you know, one of the one of the things I say is like, don't come in with an agenda. Just go, look, I'm here to help. I know you've got a lot on your plate. So, you know, how can I help? What's on your mind? Mm. And it makes it a conversation about I'm here to help you rather than I'm here to check up and, and kind of approve of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and in your past, have you had one-on-ones with your team members in a kind of ad hoc basis, on a regular basis? What has worked for you? I'm just curious. Well, we, we've experimented with a bunch of things. The way we do it at the... So I have a I have a very small team of one person at the moment. So inherently, I have an all-hands meeting and it's a one-on-one. So, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit complicated. But, you know, Ainsley and I, who are the the... the, the the team of kind of my new little spin-off after Box of Crayons, we we follow or experimenting with the kind of the Rockefeller habits pattern of meetings. Mm-hmm. So part of that is a morning check-in. And it's like, hey, how are you doing? What's useful for us to talk about? How can we help? What are you up to? I want to know what you're doing. You want to know what I'm doing. So not that we're checking up on each other, but we're just understanding that we work remotely. We're a distributed company. We want to see each other. We want to connect on a human level. I want to hear how Quinn's doing. I want to know how we're handling the, you know, Quinn's six. So she's like staying home because we've just declared an extra long March break. So Angel's like, how do I do childcare? Cause um, you know, she's a parent. So we right. use it as a kind of human connection moment. 
Shannon, who's now running Box of Crayons, the CEO of Box of Crayons, she does do one-on-ones with her her leadership team. Um, but more important, I feel, are the kind of the the team meetings where there's a chance to get together and cohesively work on stuff. And this is, you know, this is probably getting way into the weeds about Box of Crayons, but we were a distributed company for many years, and we we create and our business model and our distribution meant actually that we turned into a very siloed company and there was a way mm. that the baton got passed from one thing to the next thing and then the next thing to the other thing as it kind of went through a very linear experience of something being processed or something being solved and as we've grown we've kind of realized that 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 is insufficient to support the people we're trying to support and collective responses and collective uh, accountability is what's required at Box of Crayons. So Shannon's seeing this culture change, which is a much more profound sense of client-centric, meaning we as an organization support our clients, not there's a way clients are supported by different parts of the company at different times. Yeah, that cohesion is... uh going to be a lesson a lot of folks have to learn as in this moment, we uh, all had to work remotely. I was having a conversation with with clients earlier today uh, who have not historically supported uh, working from home, you know, both from a philosophical perspective, but certainly not from a logistical perspective. And I was like, well, Lucky for you guys, we're going to just skip like freshman and sophomore year right now. (laughs) We're going to go right to junior year. Like we're going to go right to the 301 level of what distributed workforce looks like. So, you know, let's see how that goes next week. It's going to (laughs) be super interesting, y'all. This is the video camera on your on your computer. Let's start (laughs) with that. Let's take the tape off that and get to work. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, So um, so when you think about those um those one-on-one interactions, whether in your own company or, you know, how you coach your clients. I really, I really liked where you started with, um, curiosity led conversation. And the question that like has been nagging at me since you said that is how do you actually stay curious? Because I think as a, as a species, we suffer from lack of curiosity in a lot of moments, particularly interpersonally. And so I'm like, I'm just wondering, like, because I agree with you that your reptile reaction is like, let me tell you all the ideas that I just Mm -hmm. had because I'm so smart and I listened so well. And I'm not even going to let you finish what you're saying. I'm going to just tell you all of the things. (laughs) So like, for real, how do you lead with curiosity when everything in you wants to just give advice? That's a hugely awesome question. And settle back, everybody, because in 90 minutes, I'll have explained this. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Here we go. Okay, Longest great. podcast Poss- ever. Possibly longer. I'm just going to read my entire book to you. So, <laughs> so, so he, page one. He, yeah, page one, in which the reader is surprised at how difficult it is to stay curious. So, all right. So there's, there's, there's two answers to this. And it actually starts by stepping back and going, let's talk about the nature of change. And, you know, this work, this t- thinking comes to me from people like Ron Heifetz and uh, Bob mm-hmm. Keegan and Lisa Leahy and Immunity to Change. And I've taken some of their ideas and kind of tried to make it a little bit more accessible and talked about the difference between easy change and hard change. Um, what what Heifetz and uh, the other two would call technical change and adaptive change. 
But mm-hmm. let's talk about easy change. Easy change is what we do all the time, that we're all pretty good at it, is when we come across something that we, we don't know how to do and we figure it out. We read a book and we listen to a podcast and we watch a YouTube video and we start practicing it and we're kind of a bit mediocre at start, but we move from consciously incompetent to consciously competent and then we get the hang of it and we master it. So, you know, you get a new phone, you get a new workplace and you figure it out. And for some people, being curious is actually easy change. They're like, oh, you know what? I just needed a few good questions and a little insight as to how to ask a question well. And, you know, once I've got that, I get it. And actually Mm -hmm. I'm there and I'm just practicing it and you build habits and repetition means that you get better and better at it. And that's how it is for some people. Right. But that's not how it is for lots of people. Because for lots of people, staying curious is hard change or what Heifetz would call adaptive change. And adaptive change is when you realize that it's not simply enough to graft on a new piece of knowledge. You mm-hmm. actually need to rewire how you show up in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the difference between downloading an app and getting a new operating system. Mm-hmm. And for some of us, many of us, I think, actually being curious is a bit more of this this hard change. This, you know, I need a bit of rewiring. Mm-hmm. And this takes a little more self-work because here's the fundamental thing that you're playing off. You're saying, I want to say no to some of the short-term benefits I get from not being curious because there are plenty of those. Mm-hmm. Right, and right. trade that off for some of the longer-term benefits for being curious. And we're well, so good at that as people, trading the, <laughs> the right. short-term for the long. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, it's, I know, Never. It's you, exactly, I know. It's, it is hard. This is hard change. Yeah. But um, most of the time, we're not even conscious of the trade-offs that we're making. Right. So one of the simplest acts to do is to take a breath and go, you know, as I see myself, as I see my advice monster take over the conversation, what are the benefits that I get from being in control of the conversation like that? And, you know, in the book, I say, look, there are three different types of advice monsters. There's tell it, there's save it, and there's control it. And Mm -hmm. tell it, it's all about the, oh, you know, I've got to have the answer. I've got to have all the answers. That's the way I add value. That's the only way I add value is to have all the answers. And there are benefits to that approach like you feel smart you feel like you're adding value you feel like you're you're not you you know if you're old like me you're like see i've still got it i'm not redundant (laughs) yet um but the the price you and others in the system pay is that you become the bottleneck you become a block to others growth you stifle innovation Mm -hmm. um you know uh, save it is the second persona of the advice monster and that's Inside is like, look, your job is to to rescue everybody. You know, don't mm-hmm. let anybody stumble mm-hmm. or struggle or fail or find it difficult. You know, if they're sweating at all, you're failing. Right. And there's, <laughs> there are some great advantages to being savored because you feel like you're the rescuer. You feel like you're a bit of a burning martyr because of your self-sacrifice <laughs> and trying to save the world. You right. keep everybody safe. You're seen as a kind of, you know, mother hen or a fraternal or paternal figure you got all of that going on, but you can see the price you pay for that, which is like, first of all, you can't rescue everybody. Secondly, people only learn by, by stumbling and making mistakes. That's, that's what growth looks like. 
Thirdly, it is exhausting right. <laughs> to do that. It's, and it's stifling. People get stifled by your, oh, I'm just trying to help thing. Mm-hmm. And then control it is a third of the advice monsters. And it's kind of driving modus operandi. It's like, don't ever give up control. Because if right. you give up control, you're going to lose. You're going to fail. I mean, who knows what chaos will result. And there are some great advantages to control it, which is like, you know, you keep control. You keep everybody safe. You keep out random and chaos. You've, you've got your hands on the rein, so you've got nobody threatening you. You're, you've got status. But, of course, the price you pay is the, the weight of that responsibility and the mm-hmm. fact that you don't allow others to step in and step up and the fact that you don't allow the serendipity of the future to come in and influence what's happening. And the starting point for this shift of behavior to stay curious is to get a little clearer about the prizes and the punishments of your current mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a very long answer. But shorter, than, shorter than the initial 90 minutes that I was promising. <laughs> That was like chapter one. <laughs> I feel like I have a small trophy with my name on it for each of those monsters in my like management closet that I could pull out and dust off and show <laughs> you. Should you should name them. Uh, we'll name yeah, like them. I've definitely worn all those hats. So that right. I think that really resonates with, with folks. Yeah, it, it does really resonate. And like, you know, I, I had this insight this morning and then I posted a sort of slightly sassy tweet about it. But... <laughs> With the third type of monster, the need to control what has occurred to me in this moment of chaos is also like, if you're going to try to exert control of over other people, you're going to limit the agency and authority that they have. You better be right. Right. And you better be right for every single one of them. Yeah. And good luck with that, homie. Because like that's gonna that's be super real likely. hard right now. <laughs> yeah. And so I like this idea, like even, you know, applying this just because of the kind of week we're having right now right. and how rapidly the COVID situation is evolving. I like applying this thinking to say, like, you know, in complexity with our family members, with our employees, with whomever, like how can we be curious rather than rushing to conclusions or advice or answers when actually in this much uncertainty, we don't have any. And we're much more likely to make better long-term choices if we don't immediately rush to tell people what is right for them and what to do. You know, I think one of the key words you put out there is the word complexity, because Mm -hmm. part of what the behavior that precedence on, I've got the answers and my job is to have the answers and to save the people and to save the day is that this isn't a complex situation. It may be a little complicated, but it's not complex. As soon as you understand the implications of going, no, it's complex, (laughs) and what that means is it is messy and confusing and unpredictable, and the chances of you having the answers and the chances of you saving all the people and the chance of you maintaining control is delusional. I mean, it's it's ridiculous (laughs) to think that you can pull that off. And if you think you can, you just don't understand the situation. And speaking of delusional, I am super curious about this experience that you've had that a lot of people don't get to have, which is you've coached a lot of top leaders. And in fact, at a recent event you and I were both at, you coached a top leader on stage in front of like a thousand people. Um, What... What do you find is different or interesting or stands out to you about doing coaching with people that are normally the coaches and normally the knowers and the tellers and the, you know, controllers and all those monsters that you just described? 
I think, and, and you know, I speak, I speak, I can speak on both sides of that equation because you know I do coach people. Um, I'm also just a terrible person to try and coach because you know I, I know all the tricks and I see them coming and um, and I can do fake vulnerability so I can sound like I'm being mm. coached, but in fact I'm like being quite quite slippery about it. And mm. what I find is that when you're working with senior people, they have a well honed defensive shield because they're yeah. like you know I've. I actually have a responsibility in this role to not be vulnerable. Like people look to me for confidence and certainty and vision and drive and all of that. And that's a very strong narrative still in the work that we do. And it's like, yes. don't be messy. And um, people have succeeded often by going, look, actually I just, you know, I <laughs> eat my feelings, swallow my pain. Um, <laughs> And one of the things that can be really powerful is to do two things. One is show up in a way that feels undaunted by their status, even if you are daunted. I mean, to your point, you know, Aaron, I was coaching this person on stage, actually two of them. They're, mm -hmm. they're super senior in a really big company. They're far more experienced at everything <laughs> than I am. You know, they're paid a hundred x what I've ever been paid in my entire life. You know, there's there's in terms of status, they tick all the boxes, and I tick none of the boxes, other than the fact that I'm actually sitting with them on stage, and right. I'm mostly trying to control my imposter syndrome and going, you know what, my job is to meet them as an equal, and my right. job is to to not fall for the opening salvos of authority and status and certainty, but to say, I am seeing the human being beyond the EVP title or whatever it is, CVP title or super yes. RFNP VP title, whatever, <laughs> whatever the letters I got behind them. I'm like, you know what? All of them. I mean, I remember coaching another person uh, in it was a kind of similar event, same company. And, and she started off by going, well, again, my challenge is around this visionary statement for this part of my company. And I was like, yeah, but what's the real challenge in that for you? And she's like, well, and she kind of restated it. It's about vision, transformation, and moving to that. And I'm like, yeah, but what's the challenge in this for you? And she's like, my job's really hard. I'm overwhelmed. I'm exhausted. I, yep. I don't feel I have control. And there was this kind of gasp from the audience because these were all right. her, this is like, this is like 2000 people who effectively all reported to her and to see her kind of open up and go, actually, this is the hard thing. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is, this is the hard thing for me was this kind of, honestly, it was an amazing piece of leadership from her, even though I don't think she quite read the small print and knew what she was getting into. But it was an amazing, mm -hmm. amazing moment of, of vulnerability because if you're four levels or five levels or six levels down from that person, you're like, you're just a demigod and I assume you've got it all together. And actually, no. Right. So for, um, for people who are going to try to create more of a coaching habit with those around them. What are some of your tips for cutting through a bit of that 
like avoidance, slipperiness, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like the question you just gave us, like what's hard about this for you? I think to me, that's a great way to find an opening. Um, yeah. But I, I feel like, you know, in a lot of conversations that a lot of us have all day, it's like, you know, I really want to know what's really going on here. I'm not interested in your like jargon filled content oriented bullshit. Yeah. Um, so what, like, what else would you tell people to try to sort of get through some of the shenanigans? Well, let me give you three principles to start things off because Great. Prin- principles are often more useful than tactics, um, more, more <laughs> fundamental, you know, people who yeah. deal with complexity, you understand that. The three principles I talk about to help anybody be more coach-like, uh, be lazy, be curious, be often. So mm-hmm. I'll break those down. I like the first yeah. one. So be lazy. is like stop working so hard to try and solve everybody else's problem for them because it's exhausting for you. You're actually not that good at it, and it's disempowering for other people. So allow, yeah. allow you to step into the fact that the most powerful thing you can be doing is helping them figure out what's going on, not providing them a fast, wrong answer. So being lazy is a starting point. Being curious is truly to say, look, you, you are, as I said before, you're an advice-giving maniac. L- start noticing your advice monster. Start noticing how mm-hmm. fast that advice monster looms up and goes, oh, I really want to jump in here. And start building a coaching habit. And to start with a question, and I'll give you one or two questions mm-hmm. in just a minute. And the third principle is around being often, is to say, here's the thing. One of the pieces of baggage that comes with coaching is it needs to be a formal sit down situation. You know, we're doing our coaching Mm -hmm. session now. Being often says actually any interaction can be a bit more coach-like because being more coach-like is simply staying curious a little bit longer. So you can do that in a podcast interview, in a one-to-one meeting, in a team meeting, by text, by email, on a phone call, on the bus on the way home. Every conversation can be infused with a little more curiosity And that's you being more Mm coach-like. So if you go with those principles, be lazy, be curious, be often, then what I would say is, so pick a question. doesn't really even matter which one. Just pick a question and start trying to, you know, it's like picking up a 10-pound dumbbell in the gym. It's like start with a small weight and start working out. Right, Mm -hmm. right. The question I go to is like, if you're going to pick one question, this might be it. Actually, I'm going to give you three questions. And to the people listening, it's like, pick one, <laughs> pick one of these questions. I don't care which one. There's, a, there's one that you can use all the time, and it's this. It's, and what else? Because I love that one. Their first <laughs> answer, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Their first answer is almost never their only answer, and it's rarely their best answer. So not only will you get more from any conversation you're in, but and what else tames your own you know, desire to leap in and stop asking questions. So that might be one to take off. And part of the amazing power of and what else is nobody even notices you're asking it. <laughs> Somehow mm-hmm. you're just kind of keeping the flywheel of the conversation going. But if you don't like and what else, you're like, ah, oh, it's too weird. I didn't want that one. Give me another one, Michael. I'm like, perfect. I've got one for you. And it's an opening question, the kickstart question. And the kickstart question is, hey, so what's on your mind? What's on your mind? And what that is, and we talked about that before is, Rather than setting the agenda, you say to the other person, hey, um, your, your, your conversation, you get to pick what we talk about because this is what empowerment looks like. I'm giving you that choice. But don't tell me anything and don't tell me everything. 
tell me what you're excited about or you're worried about or you're anxious about or what you're kind of fearful about. Let's go somewhere important. And if people are listening and going like, well, okay, it's all right, I guess, but I want another one. Give me another one, Michael. I'm like, okay, I've got another <laughs> one for you. And it's a question you can ask at the end of any conversation. So um, this is, I'm giving you the bookend questions. What's on your mind is one bookend question. The learning questions are where you can finish almost any conversation, not just with your direct reports, but with your boss, with your colleagues, with the person who's interviewing you, with a vendor, with a customer, with a client. Okay. And the learning question is, so what was most useful or most valuable here for you? Mm. I love that one. Because it says and recognizes that most people will not pick up what was actually helpful in that conversation unless they figure it out for themselves. And even if you're mm. on one side of the conversation going, oh, that was amazing. I mean, seriously, what I have just offered them up there is just <laughs> genius. They're like, yeah, I didn't get any of that. <laughs> So when you, <laughs> when you go what was useful here for you, most valuable, A, you're forcing them to figure it out, make new neural connections and get smarter, and B, you're getting feedback around what you do that's actually helpful and useful and valuable. That's what I was going to say. It's, it's often unexpected for totally. me what they, what they say when I ask that question. It's like, oh, really, that? Exactly. That, uh, that wasn't even my best move. Well, I know. And here's the other kind of cool added bonus if you asking somebody who's on your team what was most useful or most valuable, you actually position every single interaction with you as a useful, valuable interaction. So, so come the end of year appraisal, and and the question is, how useful and valuable is your team leader? They're like, I don't know how they do it, but they're amazing. Incredibly, every single conversation, <laughs> genius. Oh my gosh, Michael, that is classic. Um, at this point in the in the pod, I could ask, and what else? Yes. But I'm not going to because <laughs> we've run out of time. And so uh, instead, I'm going to take this opportunity to wrap things up and say, uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us today hey, and for pleasure. your generosity of spirit. It was a fun conversation. Was, Thank you. Yeah, it was. It was. And uh, Rodney, I have to tell you, this was so much more than a tedious collaboration for me. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I feel very relieved. As soon as he said that, I knew that was a phrase I was going to get a t-shirt for and, and stop calling them one-on-ones. Um, all right, cool. And then a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us all sound good and cutting this all together. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. If you want to get in touch with Michael, check the show notes. We always drop some good nuggets in there. And if you like what you're hearing, throw us a review or even better, send the show to a friend. We're trying to grow and spread this message as far as we can. And finally, as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.